night 2011. We wondered if it would ever arrive. And it did. And we're here. And I appreciate you taking the time out to come. I pray that even now that you would make it a decision, a commitment. It's only 12 sessions. That's not much. And we need every single one of those to help really get this topic under our belt. Uh, There's so much misunderstanding about this topic. So we want to make sure that we uh, do our best to master it. And we're going to do that. If you're new to Compass Night, and there's got to be some that have never been to Compass Night, this is not weekend church, just so you know. It's very different. This is not classic homiletics. It's not preaching. Uh, We are lecturing through some topics. I try to keep it as fresh and interesting as I can. But there will be more to write, perhaps more to look up, if that's possible. And uh, charts, did I mention charts? We like our charts. And I had so many I was going to unload on you tonight, but I just only won tonight, as you saw. If you don't have a worksheet yet, they are up front. You should have one by now on your table. So it is a little different than the weekend. And also, if you're new to Compass Bible Church, you may recognize, I trust, that we're not empiricists, we're not rationalists, we're we're biblicists. We are all about looking to God's Word to give us definitive, authoritative truth on a topic. And if you're not there yet, you need to kind of go back to where we've been, because we've studied this uh, many times. I've taught it probably, that class, uh, five times over the, the years Uh, And that is, you know, how do we understand the nature and the origins of the Bible that we have? Can we trust that book that you have in your lap? That's our, uh, that is our conviction. That's why we're looking to scripture to see what the scripture says and rightly understanding that so we can comment with any kind of, uh, uh, any kind of uh, real confidence that, uh, that this is right, this is true. So, you know, if you're looking for a different kind of, of uh, attack, on the topic of angels and demons, you're not going to get it. You're going to look. We're going to we're going to use the Bible as our guide, uh, and and not uh, endless stories or examples or, or testimonials uh, or or any other. You know, there's been a lot of different approaches to this topic, but we're going to Scripture to do that. And so I hope you will hang with us. As a matter of fact, if you have any, um, I don't know, attraction to what's happening here tonight, I trust you'd go and grab a few other people and bring them. And we still have a few seats out there, I can see, and uh, we'd love to fill the place up and spend our time studying this topic. So before we dive in uh, to week number one, let's take a moment to pray together and ask God to give us a good time of learning. Let's pray. God, thank you very much for your word. Can't stress enough um, just how thankful we are, or I am, and I trust many in this room are, for your uh, propositional, definitive, authoritative, black and white, uh, objective truth that you have delivered through the apostles and the prophets that has the imprimatur and the fingerprints of, uh, of the Spirit's work, the divine work that is evidenced through predictive prophecy and unity and everything else that we find that gives us that confidence that you have spoken, you've spoken clearly on all the matters that we address here on Thursday nights, and we want to understand what you have to say. And while you don't tell us everything we want to know, 
about all of these topics. And clearly this one is so provocative. There are many things we'd like to know that your word doesn't directly address. Uh, we certainly want uh, to, to, to stand firmly on what you have said and be very careful about speculation uh, in these areas. So give us, God, a real sense of uh, alertness and sobriety and, and awareness and concentration, and just make this a great time uh, as we dive into this tonight. Uh, give us uh, fellowship in the process. That's why we serve the food here, that we might uh, build relationships. We do this teaching around round tables, and I pray all of that would be conducive to building networks of friendships and relationships here amongst the people of Compass Bible Church. So thanks so much for the opportunity. Make it a great night, please, for us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Compass Nights have been about a systematic study of theology and uh, just to give you some background on this, and I know these are really small letters, the smallest of the night, but we've studied the origin and the nature of the Bible, and the classic divisions of theology are based on the Greek words. Biblios means simply the book, which is really what Bible means, the book. And we study the, the nature and the origins of the Bible in bibliology, the study of God. We call that theology proper. And before we ever look at any information about God from the Bible, we better master the our understanding of the book, the Bible itself. That's why bibliology always comes first. The person and work of Christ, we call that Christology. By the way, theology proper, uh, theos, the word for God. We get the word uh, God, and we have to narrow that down by adding the word proper because all of theology encompasses all of these topics and subjects. But theos, theology, theology proper. Christos, Christology, the study of Christ, the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. Pneuma is the Greek word for spirit. Pneumatology, the study of the spirit. Uh, creation, nature, and fall of mankind. Those are really under two headings in classic divisions of theology. Anthropology, creation and nature of man, uh, mankind, and the fall of mankind, and all the implications of that. Uh, Harmatiology, harma which is from the word harmartia in Greek, which is the word for sin, to miss the mark, to fall short. Redemption, God getting us back from sins and sins clutches and all of the damnation that goes with that, our salvation. We, we study that under the rubric or the heading of soteriology. Soteria is the Greek word for salvation. The nature and function of the church. Uh, ecclesia is the Greek word. Ecclesiology, we call that. The study of angels and demons, which you're uh, I hope all prepped for. We call that angelology, angelos, the Greek word for messenger. More on that here in a minute. The study of end times, eschaton is the end, the final things. Eschatology, the study of end times. So bibliology, theology proper, Christology, pneumatology, anthropology, homartiology, soteriology, ecclesiology, angelology, and eschatology. If you go to seminary, that's what you're hoping to study, along with a lot of other things, but that's what you're trying to master. What does the Bible say if you take all of the data from the Bible and systematize that in your thinking so that you think biblically about the Bible, about Christ, about God, about the Spirit, about salvation, sin, mankind, the church, angels, and the end times. That's uh, what you're going to get if you go to Bible school. But if you say, I don't have time for Bible school, that's fine. Because in 2007, we covered eschatology because we always want to start at the end. Uh, actually, we'd on various topics before that, but since uh, Compass Bible Church has been founded, and then in 2008, we did theology proper. In 2009, we did bibliology. Last year, we did Christology, and this year, of course, we're doing angelology, so we're working our way to the middle. Uh, and there is a rhyme and reason to that, which I have uh, no energy or time to explain to you. Uh, it'd be better had we gone straight through it, but there are other 
matters and reasons that we took it the way we did. So the bottom line is if you're brand new to this and you want to catch up with us, all of it's for free. It's all on the internet. You can download the lectures. There's 13 to 12 sessions or lectures that are usually about 90 minutes long and you can kind of catch up with us. I just talked to some people recently just working through them. Talked to some folks in Texas that happened to be listening to them and I they were encouraged. Even somebody here that's new on staff telling me this week they're uh, moving through some of them and if you just can get them one after the other on your iPod when you're exercising or whatever, you can master some of this material. And though I can't give you a diploma or a degree when you're done, hopefully you'll get, uh, if you pay attention, a lot more than the seminarian who didn't pay attention. Uh, Let's just say that. And when it comes to uh, angelology, I must admit, and I was blessed because I happened to go to a school early on where we had really the uh, just an expert nationally on this. He had done so much of his work, his coursework, some dissertations on this. He taught classes on this. And, and when I went on to uh, graduate school, master's uh, work and, and doctoral work, I never got an entire course ever again on angelology, but I did in my undergrad. And so I must admit up front, uh, you know, I got a large stack of notes and stuff that I took in that class. I'm following basically uh, the gist of that. So without having to footnote all of that work from my professor back in the day, I just make that disclaimer up front. Usually I'm assembling and building my own uh, outlines and my own progression. This time though, this year, I couldn't improve on what I had studied uh, many years ago. So I'm really giving you the basic structure of what I've been through uh, way back in the day. Uh, Before computers, I pulled out some old newspapers that I wrote for my angelology class. And you know how you had that cotton fiber paper that you used to type on? Uh, I had all those papers with that cottony uh, paper. I thought, wow, that was right after they invented writing. And, you know, it was so cool. Um, Felt really old looking at that. Because we did not have, I mean, I, I was preaching at the college. See, I got to stay on track, but preaching at, uh, at Master's College for their chapel last week and thinking about, we were talking about prayer, and I thought, man, they, have, they all have cell phones, they have texting, and I, think, I thought, I didn't have any of that uh, in college. But to think that I didn't even have a computer in college, um, I don't know, that's amazing. My typewriter plugged in. I had an electric typewriter, so I was feeling pretty cutting edge back then. And those of you that are older than me, you've got your own stories. When it was quills and, and slide rules and, yes, and ink wells. But uh, we had ballpoint pens and typewriters. My first typewriter, of course, was not electric. You got a good one. Anyway, I'm sorry. What is angelology? talk about that. Every year we try to at least look at the word and and to try and tie it to the way the Bible uses the word is important. So let's talk about the word angelology and the chart sometimes helps us sort that out. And uh, and this one's easy, of course, like most of them are. Uh, Of course, we're dealing with the word angel in English and ology. And we get those from these words. Let's start with ology, which is the same every year we talk about that. Uh, Logion or logos 
are the words that are used that have been brought from uh, Greek into Latin and into English as a suffix to all these areas of study because they represent, or I should say they are defined as a body of knowledge. Uh, they're defined as uh, information and, and, a, and, and, and a, a, a corpus of, of, of information or data. Uh, that word, or those two words, are used 339 times in the New Testament. It's everywhere, uh, and it's a very common word. And one example uh, would be in Romans chapter 3, and you don't need to look this up, but in Romans chapter 3, verse 2, it translates the word oracles, at least in the ESV. Uh, the, the oracles of God, the information coming from God, the divine information that God gives his people. Uh, logos, of course, it means word or divine message. Uh, it is the information that we get uh, from God or as one person passes on information uh, to the other. Um, the words of God, the information from God. Uh, the word here that we're interested in is the word used in Hebrew, melech and angelos in Greek. Those two words, as I've transliterated them there for you, and I know it's really small, they get bigger as we go. Uh, can you read all that? All right, we're going to get some screens up, Joe tells me, uh, or I told Joe, uh, that are going to help us around the auditorium. Maybe on those pillars, wouldn't those be good to have some right there? That would be good. Melek. Uh, Melek is used 214 times in the Old Testament, and Angelos is used 186 times in the New Testament. Of course, if you're brand, brand new to this, Hebrew is the original language of the Old Testament. Greek is the original language of the New Testament. And those are the languages we learn and study, though they're ancient languages. And so we can understand better. And, and certainly in this topic, it becomes very important, as you'll see in the weeks to come, that we understand what those words mean. Melek, if you were to translate it in a non uh, spiritual sense, and, and by that I mean just to speak in a, in a, in a non-technical way about the word melech, it simply means a, a messenger, someone who brings a message or trans, transfers or tra, relays a message. Same thing with angelos in the New Testament. Uh, angelos means uh, a messenger. But of course, it takes on the meaning of a uh, what we're here to study, an angelic being, a spiritual being who brings some kind of message or does some kind of, of bidding or business from heaven to earth. Uh, Melech and uh, Angelos, we're going to look at a lot of usages of those. But it's not the only time we have references to angels, as we'll see even tonight. Add those two together, that's 400 times in the Bible. 400 times from Genesis to Revelation that we find the word, that the standard word for angel. Now, sometimes it represents a human being. Uh, but most of the time it represents a, a, an angelic being in a different class of being. And we're here to learn all about those. And I say there's other words, of course, because as we'll see, there's different words that are used for the angels. But this is the common one. Cherubim, seraphim, you've heard of those living creatures, uh, you know, the, the rulers, authorities, principalities, powers. We'll get into all that. So if you really put all that together in your mind, wow, the Bible's replete with this. I mean, it is a ubiquitous everywhere present kind of reality as we'll see in just a minute here as we move on. Uh, let me just give you the first reference of Melech in the Bible. You might want to look at this one and start it. It's always good to see when the word shows up for the very first time in Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. And it's interesting that what we have here, if you were in our Christology class last year, the first reference to the word Melech is, is a reference uh, to 
the whole entire phrase that comes out as a special phrase in the Old Testament uh, as the angel of the Lord, the Melech of Yahweh, this this um, personage that speaks in the first person for God. Now, it doesn't happen every time, uh, but the first reference we have to it here as the angel of the Lord finds Hagar uh, by the spring of water in the wilderness. And uh, there's the context. And the only reason I made you turn there is so you might start. And, and here is the very first reference to the technical word for um, angel. Is it our first reference to angel? No. Uh, matter of fact, go back to Genesis 3 since you're in the neighborhood. Uh, obviously, we look back later and find that the whole tempter in the, in the garden was, a, was, was Satan himself, right, in, in Genesis 3. But look at the end of Genesis 3. That's the bad guy. Look at the good guy doing God's bidding in the last verse of Genesis 3, verse 24. Uh, he, that is God, the Lord God, drove, drove Adam out of the garden, east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed, here's one of the words that represents a category of angelic being, the cherubim, a flaming sword and a, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And, and we've talked about that before, but by an act of grace in a state of sin, physical death would be a great thing that was needed in God's redemptive plan. So he sent an angel, a cherubim, to guard, to guard the entrance. So we've got the occurrence of an evil angel in the first verse of Genesis 3 and a good angel in the last verse of Genesis 3. Angels appear in the very beginning, in the very first story of the Bible after we get a creation of the entire scene of the tree and the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and all of that. So even though we don't have the word melech here, we've got angels at the very beginning. Um, Revelation 22 I just thought I'd go for the last one uh, to show you that it's, it really bookends the entire Bible. Uh, Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible, verse 16, uh, would be the last reference to the word angelos, which is just transliterated into our language. You know the difference between translation and transliteration. To translate something is to turn it into an di entirely different word. To transliterate something is to take Greek letters and turn them into English letters. And that's what we've done with the word angelos into English, angels. It really has no meaning in English unless we tell someone what it means. We're simply turning a Greek word into an English word as we do here uh, and many places that we see the word angelos in the Bible. Verse 16, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angelos, my angel, to testify to you about these things for the churches, which is, by the way, how the book starts. He's going to send a message to John about the eschaton, the end times thing, and he sends an angel to deliver the message. And really, if you've been with me in studying through the book of Revelation, uh, it is a multimedia presentation, basically, a big PowerPoint thing that God does here in, for 22 chapters in Revelation, all given through the angelos, the, the, the angels. So from the beginning to the end, and you've already written this one down, but the very beginning, we got different words for the angelic beings, but we have angels in the beginning, we have angels at the end. We have over 400, we have exactly 400 uses of the word uh, melech and angelos in the Bible. If you want more stats, I can give you more. Um, what's 17 plus 17? 34? 34 out of the 66 books of the Bible specifically reference angels in one way or another. 17 in the Old Testament, 17 uh, 
you don't use the word coincidentally when you're talking theology, but it is interesting that it's exactly 17 in the New Testament as well. So 17 out of the 27 New Testament books, 17 out of the 39 Old Testament books specifically have some narrative or some reference, some doctrinal teaching about the angelic beings. That's a lot. Yeah, it is, Pastor Mike. That's a lot. It's everywhere. All right. Why should we study this? That's a great question. I'm glad you've asked it because we need to make sure that we are spending our time well because we could be watching whatever comes on on Thursday nights uh, or reading a book, but we're here. Why? Well, one thing is, and I've already tried to talk to you about how comprehensive this theme is, we shouldn't neglect any theme of the Bible that shows up as much as this one does. This thing shows up, right, all over the Bible from the beginning story of the fall in Genesis 3 all the way to the last chapter of the Bible. Specifically, the very proper word that is used to describe this class, it is used 400 times in the Bible. 34 of the 66 books of the Bible talk about these guys. Um, we should know, we should know more about it and we should study it. Anything that's that frequent in the Bible, we should take time to study. So that's what we're going to do for the next 12 sessions with a few breaks here and there. Uh, I want to raise a, and here's an important word you should underline proper awareness of the roles of angels and demons, the proper awareness because, and here's what I find, at least in my generation, I think because in the 70s and the 80s, early 80s in particular, there was such a, a rise in interest in the angelic, uh, I think the evangelical church, many of them who looked at it and saw the excesses of that, then they turned and just ignored it, right? So you find really two extremes when it comes to the topic of angels and demons, either people that are obsessed with it, Right? And there's a demon under every rock in, in their thinking. Or evangelical Christians that just ignore it because it's too spooky and weird and I don't understand it anyway. So let's leave it alone. Those are two extremes and we want to somehow figure out what the biblical balance should be in that. If these guys, sorry, they're going to be mad at me for calling them guys for the next 12 weeks. Uh, if these very powerful angelic beings, how's that? You like that better? Um, if they're so involved in all that God is doing and has done throughout redemptive history and currently in this world, according to the New Testament, then um, we should be aware. We should probably, for a group like this, except a few of you may have come because you heard this topic, probably need to be more aware than we are. And for a few of you, you need to calm down. But we'll try to see if we can figure out <laughs> where we can find that proper balance in being aware of how this works. Um, oh, by the way, interesting. If you go to the bookstore today and try and find a good book on angels in a Christian bookstore, um, there aren't rarely any bookstores anymore, but let's just say you found one. Uh, you would probably not find much on that. If you were to look back in the 70s and early 80s, you'd find all kinds of things. And I proved this in an interesting way uh, when I was on my study break here last month, a little vacation time. We stopped at the largest used bookstore in Florida, and uh, which is just a great afternoon. That spells great afternoon for Pastor Mike. Largest used bookstore in, in Florida. And... Um, and I went back to the section, it was really big, on Christianity and theology. And what's funny is all of these books are old. 
I mean, and this is one of those bookstores that overprices all their used books, so no, they never sell, right? Uh, so they, they have a huge inventory, and it's old inventory, and they had at the beginning of their theology section, which was probably, I don't know, 70 feet long, all the way to the ceiling, they had an entire section, the first section, all on angels. And I thought to myself, you don't see that anymore. Then I started thumbing through the books, and they were all, you know, from the 70s and 80s. Uh, they, they were publishing them like crazy back then. Now, the guy's non-Christian, obviously, running this bookstore. At least I think so. And if he is a Christian, he needs to go to Compass Night, uh, figure out how to arrange his books a little better. But anyway, uh, as I looked through his books, you know, there was a couple good ones in there, which, of course, I bought. But most of the stuff was junk. It was coming from new age stuff. It was coming from, but it proved that there was a time when the people were obsessed with this. They were obsessed with it. And, and now I find most people are not. Um, and I don't know where you are, but we'll find out. But because of all of that and all that happened, particularly with the rise of the new age movement, all with what happened in the church in the seventies and eighties, uh, there's a lot of myths that have grown up around this. And even with the neglect of a focus on good biblical angelology, there is a kind of a cultural uh, set of beliefs that that kind of settle in on the church, and this is a problem because we need to need those out. We need to uh, dispel several cultural myths about uh, angels and demons. Some of them have come up in some, you know, attempts to speak biblically and a misuse of biblical passages, and most of them have just come up through popular culture. Right? I mean, just people have just said things and people have believed it, um, but they're not true. And so we'll try to get to that. I mean, we, obviously, we can, we can warn you about speculation, but we can also show you things that are speculated that are contrary to Scripture, and we've got to toss those out. And so we'll be doing that throughout this uh, series. That's why we need to study it. Number four, to appreciate the breadth of God's creation. To appreciate the breadth of God's creation. Now, this I've been cogitating on this series, of course, for a long time. And as I thought about it, I thought, you know, how do we... I mean, it's really weird. I, I can understand, you know, God, uh, you know, as best as I can, and, and human beings. But here's this kind of middle group, right? That's just kind of weird. Uh, and God tells us all about this middle group a lot. 400 references to their name in, in the Bible. I thought to myself, it's kind of like explaining our reality on earth to some group living in some other, you know, galaxy, let's just say. I'm just an illustration. Don't believe that, but that's an illustration. Um, let's say they knew nothing about how we function. And you told them all about uh, people and things. There are things and there are people. There are people and there are things. And you just kept talking about people and things, people and things, people and things. And then it dawned on you at one point, well, there's a whole other thing kind of in between that, a whole other category. There's this thing called animals. And they're, you know, they're not, they're not people. Some of you think they are, but they're not. They're not people and they're not things. They're, they're different. Now, life wouldn't be the same without them. Uh, and they're important and they play a role and they do all kinds of things. And certainly, well, in our culture, uh, they do less in our kind of culture. But I mean, in cultures around the world, they have served a very important role. People ride them to get places, right? I mean, people use the dogs to corral the sheep and, and they're, they're important on ranches. And even, you know, they, cops today still use them to, to, to chew up criminals and go after criminals. And what a good, I'm all for that. But, um, didn't mean that was a bad thing. They're, 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 they're ubiquitous. They're everywhere. 
but what are they? See what I'm saying? If you had to explain that to a Martian, right, we're way past Martians, somebody in, in the Andromeda galaxy, um, that would be weird to them if they had no understanding of that. If they were just whatever they are, but we're people and things, and they don't even have, you know, you had to explain that, but then you had to explain animals, they didn't know anything about animals. That's kind of what it's like. There's a breadth to God's creation that we don't see, and he explains it to us. And it's weird because they're not gods, but they're not people, not an art. They're not human beings. They're weird. So we need to understand them. And the more we understand about them, the more you go, wow, there's a lot going on in God's creation. Number five, did that work? I came up with that illustration like three months ago. Did that work? <laughs> so, wasn't that long ago, but it felt like it. Um, hoping that might help. Number five, to better grasp the battle of good and evil. Certainly the context in which the discussion of the angelic comes up is relating to good and evil. Right and wrong, good and bad, temptation and holiness. That... You cannot understand without this weird class of beings. You can't understand or appreciate the full force or nature of that. You have to have this class of beings in your mind. Because God keeps telling us, wow, even the very first sin didn't happen without this tempter. Not the human sin, at least. There was something else involved. All the way to the New Testament. And Peter's saying, hey, be careful. You Christians, you got an enemy. He's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking some to the battle of good and evil, right and wrong, temptation and sanctification. All of that has to really be appreciated in light of the angelic class. So to understand that, to better grasp the battle of good and evil, we're going to study angels. And lastly, uh, I think it can provide us uh, some comfort and assurance, some comfort and assurance now, God is totally in a category by himself, obviously. He's transcendent. There's no one like him. That's what ultimately it means to say that he's absolutely holy. He's fully other. He's not like us. Uh, and he's not like the angels either. And we can defer to a God that we think of as, as omnipotent. But if you're a thinker, at some point, there's some disconnect there. Because as I'm praying particularly when we do things like the prayer meeting we had just before, uh, uh, it was at the beginning of August and was, we break into groups and then everybody prays and it feels, it's just a cacophony of prayers. And I'm thinking, man, God, what do you do with this right now? And we're just one prayer meeting and there's a hundred million of them going on. And, oh, it's just weird that you're able to have a focused attention on things going on all over the world. Now I know he can, and I know he does, but part of this angelic class is to give us some comfort and assurance that he has folks that are not like him, that are able to bring specific personal ministry from heaven to earth. And while it's not needed, right, it certainly is comforting and it's reassuring. God is doing things through intermediate agencies, through these beings and doing what he wants to do on earth, through beings that are a whole lot more like us, then God is like us. And that is helpful. That's helpful. I mean, uh, my illustrations don't fully work on that, but I thought of one that doesn't matter. Um, I won't confuse it with that. But are you catching some reassurance in that? Is there some I mean, comfort in that? 
I mean, there's a being that's not like God, who's more like us, who is now coming with more than we got and clarity that we don't have and doing something here on earth or doing something to his church or to us that, um, that is a different application than God himself. He dispatches his messengers. All right. That's why we're going to study it, or at least my six reasons why I think you should spend 12 weeks, and I would again say it, please commit yourself to coming 12 weeks uh, to this, and and let's finish this study strong. We'll be in December by the time we get there. Uh, But we're going to start, we're we're going to start with the existence of angels. Now, many books I've read start by trying to talk about the reality of angels, and they immediately launch into testimonials. Uh, That's of no interest to me, uh, though it's interesting. It's not of interest to me because if I really want to know if something exists, I need to go to the only definitive, absolute, propositional, truthful source of information I have from God. And I'm going to look at that and I'm going to say, God, what do you say about these beings? And so uh, we can look at those testimonials later another week. But tonight, let's go through Old and New Testament here without going through everything. I call them highlights. But maybe this will help you even by the time we're done with this section here, this middle section, it will help you say, wow, yeah, this is, um, this is something that was never doubted, has always been affirmed. It's not a fringe thing. It's not an esoteric thing. It's not a wild thing. It's not a weird thing to the Bible. This is something God is impressing on us from the beginning to the end, all throughout biblical history. Let's start with the books of Moses. And the Bible can break down this way, and that's the way we're going to do it. And I won't share all those headings yet because you'll write them down. But let's start with the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, the, the, the books of Moses. And, and we've already noted this one, but this Satan is in the garden, and he starts this very uh, dramatic fall of mankind. Uh, he is later said to be... Uh, Satan, this, this, this head honcho of a angelic class that is against God. A good verse for that might be uh, Revelation 12, 9. And he starts reciting, John does here, all of the names. He's the great dragon. He's the ancient serpent. He's the devil. He's Satan. He's the deceiver of the whole world. We know that the guy in the garden, the manifestation of temptation through this depiction of a serpent on a tree branch was Satan doing his work to get mankind to rebel against God. So the Bible, basically the drama of the Bible begins with a reference uh, to, to an angelic being. Uh, I just picked some that I thought would be interesting. Uh, In Genesis chapter 18, Abraham's having a meal. He's having a meal, and the way it starts is weird enough because it says, here's how it reads in Genesis 18, the Lord appeared to Abraham at the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. That's a weird way to put this whole thing, but here Abraham's going to have lunch with three personages. One is called the Lord, and it's defined in verse 1 of chapter 19. The other two who turn and go down to talk to Lot, and that doesn't work out very well, uh, they're clearly called the Melech, the angels, two angels. So you got God in some personification, some kind of, 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 of theophany, we call it, some kind of visible manifestation of God, and we have two angels with him. And those two angels weirdly enough, start by having a meal with Abraham. 
But the Bible just tosses it out there with no weird footnotes or explanations. Moses didn't say, oh, and by the way, if you're weirded out by this story, let me explain what's going on here. None of that. Just assumes that we, 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 it just assumes that we understand that there is a class of beings that uh, exist outside of our realm. And in this case, stop and have lunch with Abraham. How about uh, Jacob's ladder? If, that, if the lunch with angels isn't weird enough, uh, how about Jacob's dream? It's not the norm to see some personification or manifestation of an angel, although that happens uh, a lot in the Bible. Uh, but it's this understanding that there's something beyond what we can see going on. So Jacob has the dream of a ladder. And what does that, what is that about? Well, first of all, the whole point of the dream was to reaffirm the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob, who was kind of slimy and probably doubted whether or not he was going to be uh, part of this promise. But as Jacob's dream is taking place, the ladder from earth to the proverbial heaven to the sky is seen with, it's kind of like an escalator. You've got angels, remember what it says, ascending and descending. What's the point? You've got God who's not only aware of what's happening and has a conversation with Abraham about what he's going to do through Abraham's descendants, but he shows up to Jacob and he says, hey, I'm going to keep on doing this. You're a part of this. You're in this line. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you're the guy. I'm going to work through you. But you need to understand heaven is actively involved in the doings and goings and proceedings and, 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 and promises and circumstances of this earth. Angels, messengers, there's stuff going on between heaven God's, God's domain and earth, man's domain, God is involved. Jacob's ladder. Genesis 28. How about this weirdness in Exodus 23? Not a great way to introduce any text of the scripture, but uh, it is weird. Exodus 23, 20 says, behold. He says, uh, going before the host of Israel, which in this case are the children of Israel coming out of Kadesh Barnea and traveling through the... It said, moved, the angel of the Lord went, the angel of God, rather, not the angel of the Lord, the angel of God moved and went behind them, right? Led them and went behind them. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm quoting Exodus 14, 19. That's the text about going before them behind them. Exodus 23, 20, uh, similar verbiage, going before the host of Israel. No, I'm sorry. I will here it is. Are you with me still? It's usually a lot, usually a lot more polished than this. But we're just getting started. Verse 20. You're already there. You're looking at it, right? He says, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place I prepared. We'd already seen in Exodus 14, God sends an angel, the angel of God, to lead them. And now he says, not only am I leading you, I'm guarding you. And as later the psalmist says, there's something so... Uh, angelic going on there that even their sandals don't wear out. God is, is even governing their, their shoe wear, their footwear, by some kind of angelic intermediary. God is protecting and guarding and directing the children of Israel who are wandering around in the desert. Where, where are the bad guys? Well, we saw the bad guy in Genesis 3, but one of the interesting things that Moses says in Leviticus 17 was about keeping them from the practices of the Canaanites. And one of them he describes as sacrificing uh, to, to the goat demons, interestingly enough. 
angelic beings as a part of a false religion that people are giving their produce to, God abhors that. It's an abomination to God. He says, I want to make sure you don't do that. Don't do what they do. And behind their religious sacrifices, he says, are demonic beings. Leviticus 17, 7. Or a funny, but not really funny, uh, but a bit of a fun passage, I suppose, in reading it, if you haven't read it lately, is Balaam's trouble in Numbers 22. Balaam, who is uh, intoxicated by the wealth and prestige of being hired to curse Israel, God wasn't going to let it happen. And ten times in Numbers 22, the angel is described as having a part in all of what happens there, including stopping the donkey from going down the road. The angel's involved there. Um, Interesting. I mean, here's one story we hear a lot of, at least in Sunday school and flannel graph days, the, the angelic being intimately involved in all that's happening in that story, for instance. There's just some examples from the book of Moses. If you turn your sheet over, let's go to the historical books, the historical books of the Bible. Um, Joshua, Judges, right? First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings, First, Second Chronicles. Let's think through some of those. There are 33 references to angels in the book of Judges alone. Most of them have to do with the calling of an obscure person who is not being born into some lineage of leadership in Israel, but being picked out from the masses. And the Bible keeps saying the angels are involved in that. The angels are involved in that. The angel is authorizing, picking out, distinguishing one guy from another, calling him to a position of leadership. The angels. Could God do that himself? Good. But that's the story repeated over and over throughout the 14 different judges that we find in the book of Judges. Interesting, just to think of theology here. The people look at David in 2 Samuel chapter 14, at least his commander does. And after Joab couldn't pull off a ruse on David, he says this. This is their understanding of the angelic beings now. He said, I, I, I should have known that you, my lord, the king, have wisdom like the wisdom of an angel of God to know all the things that are going on. I couldn't pull one over on you. You're sharp. You're smart. You got the, you got the smarts of an angel. The, that's, ju- that's the military man talking about, oh yeah, this is the understanding we have of this angelic class. And David, you're, you're like one of them. Speaking of David's life in 1 Chronicles 21, very clear in 2 Samuel, it doesn't attribute it to Satan, but Satan himself is the one who is identified in 1 Chronicles 21 as prompting David, much like Satan tempted Eve in the garden. Here, Satan is tempting David to number the troops. Remember that whole weird situation in David's life? Putting his, you know, he's over here counting his pennies before his retirement because he's not trusting in God. In this case, it was his army. And uh, the Bible says that was all about Satan making him worry. That was all about Satan making him not trust. That was all about Satan wanting him to make sure he had all that he needed here. That was something attributed to an angel, a bad one. Speaking of that same circumstance, which is both a positive and a negative, the angel brings judgment. He is the, the executor of the judgment, the administer of the judgment that is brought upon Israel for David's sin. And David pleads, you might remember the story, he pleads with the angel, or God rather, to stop the angel's carrying out of God's judgment. And he does, and the angel is just about to carry out judgment on Aruna's threshing floor. 
you Bible Sunday school grads, what, where is that? Where is Arunah's threshing floor? Temple Mount. And at that point of the stop of that whole thing, remember all that? Here we have a focus on that. It was the, I mean, here you have an angel, right? Ultimately, through that historic situation, picking out the place where the temple would be built. Um, but angels executing judgment and choosing the temple location uh, as a secondary result of that situation. How about the, um, how about the prophets? Let's think through the prophets here for just a second. And again, there are so many more. I've already told you. I mean, there are 400 uses of just the word uh, Melech and Angelos, but I'm just highlighting a few. Can't think of a uh, prophet and angels without thinking of Isaiah. And again, it's not, the con- it's not this manifestation of an angel like with, uh, with, with Abraham having lunch with an angel or a couple of them and God. It is uh, the understanding, like with Jacob, that there's something going on that you can't see behind the scenes that is moving between heaven and earth to do the bidding of God. And so it is as here Isaiah gets this vision of God, right? And he sees the throne of God, so to speak. And what does he describe? The first thing he describes are these angelic beings. Calls them seraphims. Anytime you see, by the way, an I-M on an English word in an Old Testament context, when it's a transliterated word, that's like an S in English. That's the plural. Seraph is a singular, and seraph is the burning one. And the burning ones around the throne are called seraphim, and the seraphim are crying out, right? Hardly sounds melodious, but they're crying out before the throne, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So God gives Isaiah a picture of the majesty and the greatness of God, and it's all being spun around by these weird creatures uh, that are part of the angelic class. And if that's weird, uh, it gets a lot weirder in Ezekiel, if you know that, starting in Ezekiel 1 and 2, but uh, really culminating in chapter 10 of Ezekiel, where there are, remember the whole wheel within a wheel, this thing he sees, and the creatures with all these different heads and all this stuff going on? Well, all a part of that vision, which is a more complex picture of what Isaiah was shown very simply, Ezekiel's complex picture right, is all punctuated by angelic beings. I mean, just by name, the Melech. Um, how does it read there in chapter 10, verse 1? It speaks of the heads of the cherubim flying above the throne. Anyway, uh, you know your Old Testament. Then you know during that same period of Ezekiel, Daniel's doing his thing in Nebuchadnezzar's court. And uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fiery furnace And when they're thrown into the fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3, what happens? They light it all up. Guys throwing them in, get killed. Nebuchadnezzar stands up in the middle of all that. And he says, what is going on there? I threw three people in there, right? And the third one is like the Ben Elohim. It's like that which is the phrase that they used uh, in their theology for the the angelic class. Here is uh, the protection of the three Jewish captives being uh, administered by an angel, one like the Son of God. Daniel 6, later Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den. And in Daniel chapter 6, verse 22, as they go back and find out, hey, he's still alive, here's what Daniel says. God has sent his angels to shut the mouths of the lions. 
the mouths of the lions, so they haven't harmed me. He attributes their weird non-appetite that night, not to they must be sick, uh, need to see a vet with these lions, but the angelic class. Speaking of Daniel, he has those weird visions in Daniel chapter 9 and 10 about the future. And I call them weird, but of course, everything in Old Testament history and Western or uh, Assyrian and, and ancient Mesopotamian culture lays out exactly as those prophecies say, uh, from Babylon to Medo-Persia, uh, Greece and, and, and Rome and all the rest. And all of those visions are administered by angels and with more specificity than we've ever had, save Satan, uh, the, the serpent, the devil, we have specificity now on the good guy's side and we get names dropped. Gabriel and Michael get depicted by name as administering the prophecy to Daniel that comes true, I mean, specifically true with the change and overturn of national kingdoms from there until the time of Christ with specificity down to the very day on which Christ would be brought into Jerusalem at the uh, coronation of what we call the triumphal entry. All of that administered through the angels. Gabriel's the key player there, and Michael comes in as the highest ranking one, or so it appears in Daniel 9 to 10, and we'll talk about that later when we talk about classifications of angels. Uh, if you want some sp- specific verses, Daniel 9.21 would be a good one to look at. Daniel 10.13 would be a good one to look at there. Gabriel, Michael, specific names attributed to these beings. Zechariah, more than any other book in the prophets at least, uh, gives us, I mean, just piled on references to angelic beings. Now, Zechariah is the one apocalyptic, uh, one of the apocalyptic books, and certainly within the minor prophets, the most apocalyptic book. Apocalyptic meant God was revealing things that wouldn't be otherwise known. Obviously, all revelation is that. And it's highly symbolic because the things God is saying are very hard for them to comprehend. And in that apocalyptic view of what God was going to do to Israel, uh, the reassembled Israel, and even the messianic Israel that was yet to come, angels are punctuating that entire book. Some 20 references to angelic beings, which is also, by the way, what we get when we read the one apocalyptic New Testament book, the book of Revelation, which has more references to angels than any other book in the Bible. So we've got the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, we've got the historical books, we've got the prophets. How about the poetry books? Now, those aren't trying to give us uh, a narrative. They're trying to give us either wisdom or songs to sing. But we learn a lot about the angelic beings in the poetry of Israel. Uh, For instance, and it is classified a poetic book, though it is the one narrative in the poetic books, Job's troubles are attributed to God calling a meeting with the angelic class and the adversary stepping up after Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, after God, rather, uh, he has to brag on Job. And I'm thinking, if I'm Job, stop it. Because uh, now he gets called out and he is the center of a drama that unfolds in the book of Job. But it is all attributed to Satan. And Satan is then unleashed and his henchmen go out and wreak havoc in Job's life. And there's no footnotes, no real concern to explain. It is a matter-of-fact reality that in the sphere of the angelic and the heavenly, there's an interface in some way with the tangible physical realm in which mankind lives. Um, The songbook, for instance. We could look at Ecclesiastes or Proverbs, but let's just end with some great things here because they're, they're, they're instructive as we read the poet's 
of, of the songbook of Israel. They're called our protectors in Psalm 91.11, uh, that God commands his angels concerning you to guard you uh, in, in all your ways. Psalm 103, they're called obedient ones. They're ones who do the Lord's bidding. They're always obedient, the angels. Um, talking about the ones that made the cut, that is. They are administering judgment, as we've already seen throughout the entire, entirety of the Old Testament. And the number one promise of the future for angelic involvement is the administering of judgment in the book of Revelation. Uh, but that's how they're described in Psalm 104.4. He makes his messengers, his melechs, uh, like the wind. They're fast, they go, and they're like flaming fire. They're, they're, they're powerful, and they, they wreak havoc when they come and do their thing. Uh, and, of course, one of the main things we see in Psalms, because it's a songbook about worship, is that we see that they're a part of the worshiping throng, just like Isaiah saw. They praise him. They give him praise. They worship God. They're obedient ones. They're protectors. They're administrators of judgment. They're worshipers. Well, maybe they grew out of all of that in the New Testament. Well, they didn't. Let's talk about the Gospels for a minute. Uh, the angelic beings are discussed all throughout the New Testament, and uh, there's no shortage, of course, in the Gospels. Before we ever have Christ born, we got Gabriel, who we're introduced to with specificity in, in Daniel, now showing up by name, at least in the Luke account. We get angel in Matthew 1, but that whole discussion about the birth of Christ uh, to, to Mary it is given, not by God himself. He doesn't write a message on the wall. He doesn't speak a voice out of the air. He brings a messenger uh, who is identified as one from heaven announcing the birth of Christ. And then you get a, another interesting picture when the shepherds are out in their field in Luke, number, uh, Luke chapter 2. And they're given a vision, these, these uh, shepherds. As there's an announcement of the birth, there's a celebration of, of the birth of Christ. And you get this angelic uh, celebration that they uh, become privy to. A great angelic multitude of the heavenly host. Host means army, the big throng, the big group. They were praising God and saying, and off they go uh, with the traditional Christmas greeting card verbiage. Christ's temptation. Christ inaugurates his earthly ministry, and the first thing he does is he gets led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and he is tempted by Satan himself. At the end of chapter 4, it says after Satan was done with him, at least for the time, he was ministered to by angels. You've got the bad angel tempting him, the head honcho, and then you've got good angels ministering to him. We're not sure what that means, but uh, that's how it's described in Matthew 4. How about uh, the resurrection? When the resurrection takes place, there is a commentator on the scene, a couple of them, to explain what happened to Christ. Uh, in John chapter 20, I picked one. They're in all four Gospels, but uh, announcing the resurrection of Christ. And then, of course, all between that, between his you know, temptation and his resurrection, he's having multiple encounters, too many to list, uh, with uh, angelic beings. Christ is doing all kinds of things. We're going to look at uh, many different examples of those throughout our 12 weeks together. How about the book of Acts? Surely there's no time for angels in the book of Acts. Well, the very first thing that happens is Christ ascends in chapter 1, and when he ascends, the Bible says there are angels there explaining the whole ascension. These two robed 
messengers stand and say, why are you looking into heaven? You saw him go. Let me explain what's going to happen. He's going to come back just like that, but you've got a job to do. By chapter 5, the apostles get imprisoned. And according to Acts chapter 5, verse 19 in particular, it says an angel came and released them from prison. The jailbreak, according to the text, was the angelos. Philip, interesting, the whole point of the book of Acts is to get the gospel out in concentric circles from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Well, we need to break through those barriers. And the first barrier, one of the first barriers to break through is to get that Ethiopian uh, converted. And so Philip is described in Acts chapter 8, specifically verse 26, as being directed by the angel to go meet up uh, with this Ethiopian eunuch which is an interesting uh, description of uh, Philip being responsive to the directions of an angel. Cornelius, Acts chapter 10. This was the first time we're going to get the gospel now to an Italian. He's a uh, centurion, and he is directed to go down and talk to Peter, and the whole thing begins with an angelic visitation to Cornelius to go down there and do something you wouldn't otherwise do. He directs Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse number 3. Peter gets stuck in prison. You remember in Acts chapter 12, there's an earthquake. I'm sorry, no, that's the Philippian jailer. Sorry. This one is the angelic freeing from the prison. Acts chapter 12, verse 7, it says, The angel of the Lord picked them up, turned on a flashlight, said, Let's go, wake up, get up quickly, come with me. And he frees Peter from prison. Acts 27, Paul's on a ship. You remember that? They're in a big storm. And according to Acts chapter 27, verses 22 through 24, uh, he is there and everyone's afraid they're going to die. And it says that very night there stood before me an angel from God. Uh, and he says, and he said, do not, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted to you that you'll make it, and all those that are sailing with you are going to make it. So here comes a prophetic, comforting word to Paul when they all think they're going to crash. The epistles. Now, of course, the epistles are not like the Gospels and Acts, which are narrative, telling a story. The epistles are didactic. They're telling us what to think about all these things, and so we learn a lot about uh, angels. First thing we learn is that they come in two categories. 1 Timothy chapter 5 pastoral epistle here, they're given a designation. We use the word sloppily, which is fine if you'd like, that we call the good guys angels. But the good guys are designated uh, with more specificity in the epistles as, uh, as the elect angels, which is a word that is used of us as well. We've been given, uh, in our case, through redemption to believe in Christ. These are given to retain their loyalty to God and they're called elect. Then there are, in Second Peter chapter 2, there are angels, but they're designated sinful angels. We call those demons. And the Bible does too. But we need to understand, and we're doing a little teaching here now, that this class of beings, if you will, like animals, in our illustration about describing the reality of this weird intermediate group, uh, they come in two, two, two categories. All kinds of stratif stratification in the categories but you've either got those that are elect and, and they're holy, or you've got those that are sinful and rebellious, and those are the two categories that we have. We'll talk more about proportionality later, but they're all angels. 
which, by the way, I guess I should say, we'll talk more about the nature of angels next week, but even that is one cultural myth that I find still alive with some people that visit our church. Uh, and certainly you'll hear it in songs and in popular references. Angels are not dead people, <laughs> right? Dead people are dead people. Uh, now, they're conscious and they're alive, but they're spirit beings that will then be reconstituted in a resurrected body. Angelic beings aren't made for a body. That's not their, their nature. More on that next week. So angels are a class that have always been the way they are, except for the fact that half of them, I'm sorry, not half, but the class that we're trying to distinguish uh, has sinned against God. What do we learn in the epistles about their role? Well, when it comes to angels, the good news is the good guys, the elect angels, they are our ministers, which is a very, well, I don't know, uh, you know, make, your, uh, make you feel special before God if you realize that this entire class of beings have been assigned one particular role as it relates to the human creation, and that is to find the elect people like they are the elect angels and help them. That's their role, and that's a great great concept there, which will start to, when we get into it, hit the target of being reassured and comforted by God's effort to which he goes to do that. Demons, of course, those that are sinful, are now, if we are Christians, our opponents. And you know those classic passages like in Ephesians chapter 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, right? It's really against rulers and authorities and principalities and cosmic powers, of this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We've got a battle going on. The New Testament epistles talk about it a lot, and we'll get into some of that. But the good news is, what do we learn about uh, angels as it relates to Christ, who is the focus of our redemption and our worship, and that is that Christ trumps them all. And there are many verses I could have directed to you, but Philippians 2 is as good as any that God has exalted Christ and his authority above all other names. So that the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Go to a lot of different passages to make the case, but there is no angelic being, no matter how terrible, no matter how strong, no matter how authoritative, that is in any way an equal match uh, for Christ. More on that as we go through this series. The book of Revelation. I've already told you more than any other book I mean, this is just punctuated time and time again with angelic uh, beings. They deliver the prophecy in chapter 1, verse 2. They're said to be the intermediary of the prophecy. Uh, they are worshiping in heaven once we finally get past the letters to the churches. Oh, which, by the way, in the over 60 times the word angelos is used in the book of Revelation, eight times uh, they are used to describe the pastor of the churches in the seven churches of Asia, of Asia Minor. Uh, so Angelos is used eight times for the seven pastors in the, who are the primary preaching pastors, we're assuming there, giving the message of God to the churches. Uh, and there is a human use of the word Angelos. But most of the time, some 60 times, we've got references to the, the class that we're here to study. When we open up heaven, we get a picture of that. They're all worshiping in, in chapter 5, verse 11. Uh, now, we'll see this in other places, too, like in the book of Job, but they're having an effect on weather. In places like Rev 7 1, um, they're protecting Christians in the very next two verses, Revelation chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. They go there and keep them from the damage that's happening. And then, of course, the main role they play in Revelation chapter 8 through 16 is that they are giving 
um, some kind of manifestation on earth to God's judicial wrath from heaven. They're carrying it out. They're blowing the trumpets, right? They're spilling the bowls. Uh, and there are, in those chapters, the angels now not being administers of good for the elect. Now they're administers of God's just wrath to the non-elect uh, in, in the book of Revelation. That's just a sampling. That's just some highlights. We'd be here all night if we didn't do that, just highlight. But I got one more thing I need to say. Did I put a letter C on there? I sure hope I did. Did I? Okay, well, I'm going to add this one for free. Uh, did I really not? Because once I, once I saw letter C there, I thought, I don't remember putting letter C on the worksheet. I didn't, did I? I should do that next time. All right. Can I do this quickly? Because we have no, not much time for it here. I'm going to defer to Christ. If Christ, I mean, were you here for Easter at the Bren? If Christ really rose from the dead, okay, and the Bible is a reliable, accurate picture of what he taught and what he said, then whatever he taught and whatever he said, since he's the, the person who can show the credentials of I rose from the dead, I'm going to listen to him. No matter what the biblical authors say, if we have an accurate picture of what Christ taught, then I'm going to look to him. Now, I already said this in Matthew chapter 4, but can you remember in, in Matthew chapter 4 that the text specifically says that Jesus was led by himself out into the wilderness? Now, think about this. The only way for the gospel writers to know what happened in the wilderness is for Jesus to tell them what happened in the wilderness. And Jesus comes back and drops two things on them. I encountered Satan, and when I was done, I got ministered to by angels. Now, either he's lying or something we've dealt with a long time ago. Uh, the, the documents are flawed, uh, but we can't have it both ways. Christ himself is affirming the reality of evil angels, and particularly Satan in Matthew 4, and in all the other synoptic references to the, to the temptation. And he says, I was ministered to by angels while I was out there. Peter, James, and John weren't standing there watching any of this. Christ, when he taught... He confronted the Sadducees in Matthew 22. Sadducees didn't believe in two things, you might remember, among some others. They didn't believe in anything. I mean, they were the rationalists of the day uh, and the empiricists of the day. If they couldn't see it, couldn't touch it, couldn't smell it, they didn't believe in it. Unless God, of course, they, got a, they gave him a, a pass. But the angels and the resurrection, they didn't believe in those things. So they come and they test them with that story about, you know, the guy dying with all the wives and whose wives. It's going to be really complicated and messy if there really is a resurrection. And Jesus responds this way in Matthew 22, verses 29 and 30. He says to the Sadducees, you are wrong because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, right? They neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now that's the part to prove that there's a resurrection. And then he just goes and jabs them like the angels in heaven. Because I know you don't believe in those either. Now that's just great. Sadducees don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the, in, the, in the resurrection. Jesus comes and affirms in his teaching, there is a resurrection and they're like the angels in heaven. Because I know I've hung out with them for a lot of years now. Think about that. This is a big deal. Jesus in his teaching is affirming that. Now, if you're going to die and stay dead, maybe I won't listen to you. But you're going to die and rise from the dead. That's a big deal. He keeps talking about this. Matthew 25 is a great example. He says, when I come right, in the glory of my Father with all of the angels, right? 
Then I'll sit on my glorious throne. The Son of Man will do that. And then one of the things he says, and then I'm going to cast the bad folks who respond poorly to the gospel. They do not trust in me. I'm going to put them into the place that I prepared for the devil and his angels. He's affirming in his teaching that when I come back, you're going to see this class that you can't see now. And in the judgment, I'm going to put, them, I'm going to put human beings in a place that were created by God for the devil and his angelos, his angels, the demons. So he's constantly teaching this. This is what he's affirming. And in his ministry, of course, multiple confrontations. I just listed Mark one twenty-seven because there it refers to multiple confrontations. Uh, they were saying, uh, what, who is this guy? What kind of authority is he? He even commands unclean spirits and they obey him. We've already seen that by the end of the first chapter of Mark. And we see it throughout his teaching ministry. Uh, so Christ is showing by his actions that others can see that he has some kind of interaction with this invisible class of beings. He's teaching about it, and he himself is reporting to it when he tells his disciples what happened to him. I'm going to believe Christ's testimony. Sorry I didn't have letter C there for you. Let's talk about this as quickly and briskly as we can. Let's talk about their origins. Now, I don't have a lot on their origins, but I'll give you what I got. Here's what I got. I got that they're a direct creation of God, a direct creation of God. Psalm 149, verses 2 through 5. Psalm 149, verses 2 through 5. It talks about the fact that all the angels should praise him. Of course, this is just an you know, exuberant song of praise. It starts with praise the Lord, praise the Lord, all the heavens, praise the Lord, all the heights. Praise, you, praise him, all you angels. Praise him, all you hosts. Praise him. And then he talks about the created order, the sun, the moon, praise him, you shining stars, praise him, praise him in the highest heavens, the waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. So the Bible says that the angelic class, like the created things of the planet, were created by the word of God. They were spoken and directly created. You were procreated, right? Adam and Eve were created directly. And then they had a bunch of kids and you were procreated. They were directly created. They made Adam and Eve and off we came. God, though, every single angel was directly created. That's why the name in the Hebrew for them, one of the nicknames for them was the Ben Elohim. The Ben Elohim, the sons of God. Because they're like, they're all, there's no grandkids, right? They're all direct sons of God. And the reason, by the way, we're called sons of God is because we've been born Again, right? Second time directly by God. So that is one of their nicknames referring to this direct creation of God. He speaks and created them. Uh, Christ, of course, and I should throw this in because we just studied Christology and it is important. Christ is always the agent of creation. Christ is always the agent of creation. Colossians 1, 16 says it as clearly as any passage. For by him, that is Christ, all things were created. Not all things, really all things. All things in heaven and on earth, whether it's visible or invisible, whether it be thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, he created all things. So Christ is the agency of creation. And if that weirds you out, welcome to the Trinity. That's a weird thing. God creates. Christ is the agent of creation. He can rightly be said, as John 1 says, right? How does it put it? I think I jotted it down. ESV says, all things were made through him. That is the word, Christ. And without him was not anything made that has been made. And if angels are created beings, then Christ 
had an active role in creating them. Uh, they were created to glorify God. All I need to do is finish verse 16, which I didn't finish, and I'll finish it for you now, which ends this way. All things were created by him, right, and for him. So everything is created for God, to bring glory to God. And I could have quoted multiple psalms, for instance, that show that they're created to bring him glory, to bring him praise, to make him look good, to celebrate God's greatness. That's what they were made for. I haven't turned you to hardly any, have I? Let's turn you to the... Some of you have been turning, have you? Let's, let's look at this one together. I remember this, uh, kind of letting this verse sink in for the first time. Uh, Job 38. Job chapter 38. The timing of their creation was before the physical world. That's all we know. Before the physical world. Now, some people want to sandwich them between... You know, when God said the things that he created in Genesis 1 were good um, and the fall put them somewhere in, the, in creation week, I don't think that's necessary because the focus of Genesis, the context of Genesis 1 is the physical creation of the world. But I do know that when the world was created, they were already made. They were already made because of this passage is one example here. He says to Job, where were you? Verse 4 when I laid the foundation of the earth, tell me, if you have understanding, which you don't, you think you do, but you don't, who determined its measurement? Surely you know, smarty pants, right? And this is all sarcastic here. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Uh, when the morning stars, right? Which is another nickname for the, for the Angels, we'll look at later, sang together and the Ben Elohim, the sons of God, shouted for joy. So when God created, he had, you know, bleachers, so to speak. He had spectators who were cheering on the creation of something really weird that had never been done before. The creation of physical matter and the creation of beings who were going to live in physical containers. And they shouted for joy. So I know they were created before the creation of the physical world. Obviously, if not, they showed up real quick in Genesis 3. Um, letter E. They were created holy. They were created holy. Now, you'd hardly have to reference a verse to prove this, I think, if you understand that God, when he makes, as a holy God, he makes things holy. He does all things well. He creates all things right. He does a good job. Uh, regardless of the frustration you may have over why did the good things go bad. We've dealt with that many times. But let's just talk about the pattern of creation. When he does create, for instance, in Genesis 1.31, he creates stuff that's good. Even the things that went wrong in the tangible creation of the physical world started with his comment that he made it, he stood back and he said it's very good because God makes good things. Even all the references to the fall of angelic beings presumes that they weren't fallen before they fell. So that makes sense. They were holy before they were sinful. So this is what we know about the origins of angels. They were created instantaneously. Every single angel could look directly to God's instantaneous creation. They weren't procreated. They don't procreate, as Jesus clarified later. They were created by God. And they were created holy sometime before the physical creation. 
I also know they are created with limitations. Limitations. Part of what we know about our temporal reality is that we can think about something that is not temporal, that is not limited, and we can imagine the limitless God. Some people talk about the ontological argument for the existence of God. We have a capacity to think about God and being limitless. Do not think that just because you cannot see angels that they're like God and limitless, they're not. For instance, and I say this carefully, because they're not tangible beings. But help now, let's get a little, this will feel a little metaphysical now. They are spatially limited. Not that they take up any space. But let's look at it this way. Let's think of it this way. They cannot have their, let's just call it this. We'll clarify this in the nature talk next week. They cannot have their focus really be at more than one thing at a time. That's like us, right? I mean, it's hard for me to carry on two conversations at one time. And yet God hears all of our prayers. Angels are a lot like us in that regard. They are spatially limited. Daniel chapter 9 and 10, interesting. We'll look at this more when we open up our Bibles and see some of what was going on there. But here you've got angels coming to the response of Daniel's prayer saying, oh, I got held up. What's that about, right? That means you can't do multiple things at once. I mean, we can all multitask. I get that. But we can't really be in two places at one time. And so it is for the angelic class. They're not like God in that regard. They're not omnipresent. They're obviously limited in their authority. Two things reference this to us. Job chapter 1, you know how that whole thing started. God calls all the angelic class before him, and then there's this discussion about Job and why he's holy. I guess it's because you treat him so well, and then he has to, God has to give permission for, Job, for, the, for Satan now to do certain things only with certain limits. They're under the authority of God. And then we see, as we'll see when we talk about the classification of angels, they're all ranked. Some are more powerful than others. So whatever authority they have, whatever oversight they have, it's within measured limits. So they're not, not only are they not omnipresent, they're not omnipotent in any sense of the word. Here's an interesting thing. I could have looked to several passages for this, but I jotted down 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. They're limited in their knowledge. Now, don't write that with glee because they're smarter than you, Okay. Um, right? Think about it. They've been learning for a long time and their thinking is not reliant on a muscle between their ears with synapse and things firing in their brain that are getting old and deteriorating. They're not elect angels and even sinful angels are not subject to the deterioration that we are. And think about when, before you felt like you were deteriorating too badly and you thought, how much smarter am I now than when I was 18? Right? 18-year-olds think they're smarter than everybody. But when you get, you know, to be whatever, and, and you're still feeling like you're thinking pretty clearly, you think, wow, I've learned a lot. Multiply that all the way back to the creation of the Ben Elohim, right? The Melech, the, the, the angels of God. They've been learning a lot for a long time. They're really smart. But according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, when it talks about what God was doing, the Spirit of Christ was trying to indicate the predictions about the sufferings of Christ and, its, and his subsequent glories. It was revealed to the prophets that they weren't serving themselves, but people in the future, you guys, Peter says, the current age. 
in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. They wanted to figure it out. They were trying to figure it out. And God wasn't really super forthcoming with a lot of the information about the coming of Christ. Enough to prove that he's writing the Bible through the pen of the prophets, but not enough to really figure it all out. The drama unfolded even for the angels because they weren't omniscient. They're not omnipresent. They're not omnipotent. And they're not omniscient. Right? Now, they're getting around a lot faster than you do. Uh, they are much more powerful than you. And they're much smarter than you. But they're limited. And, praise God, because so many of them went wrong, they were created to be accountable to their creator. They were created much like every other person. Look at that, what that means next time. They were created to give an account and to be culpable and responsible for anything that they do that they shouldn't do and responsible to be rewarded and given honor for the things they do that they should do. In that regard, they're a lot like us. I've already quoted Matthew twenty-five forty-one, but Jesus chillingly says, that he is going to punish the devil and his angels, much like he will hold accountable people of this earth encased in physical bodies and containers, created to be accountable. But that's all we got time for tonight. But I hope you'd come back, unless you absolutely hated it, and then I guess go do something else. But if you would come back next time, we're going to get into a bit more detail about these beings. Let me pray for you, then I'll let you go and pick up your kids. Pray with me. God, thank you so much for our chance to study your word. I know we didn't look directly at a lot of verses tonight with our own eyeballs, but I pray that as we talk through these things, a lot of the knowledge that these folks have in this room right now, they know the stories of the Bible, they recognize, I hope, that these are the things that we see from beginning to end of the Bible. And even as we quote a few verses and refer to some familiar stories in the text, we would recognize that, yeah, this is, uh, man, this is a powerful and, and uh, albeit limited, but uh, amazing class of beings that have an interaction between heaven and earth, and we need to be paying attention uh, to how you want to utilize them in this world, not to become obsessed with this, but to be able to be aware in a proper and biblical balanced way. So God, help us in this study. It's certainly a big part of the Bible that uh, needs some attention and we need to carefully look at it. Make this a great study for us from now until December if Christ doesn't come back first, and we hope he does. But uh, Lord, we want to end this year uh, with a greater knowledge of your word, this particular part of your word than we've ever had before. So thanks for this team for being committed to expend whatever's needed to be here and to make this a reality for them and their weekly schedule in Jesus' name. Amen.